Welcome to Rail Group On Air, a joint podcast of Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief William C. Vantuono. My guest is CN, President and Chief Executive Officer J.J. Ruest. Our podcast sponsor is the Greenbrier Companies, which offers an innovative new way for rail car customers to inspect build quality. Virtual Sample Rail Car, which remotely brings you into the Greenbrier plant from the convenience of your own conference room or home office. Virtual Sample Rail Car, or VSR, provides full access to a sample rail car while significantly reducing travel time and cost. It gives all the information needed to determine that your rail cars meet all specifications and will be delivered as ordered. Narrated high-resolution video follows the complete build of your sample rail car with tools like high-resolution photos and 360-degree views, concluding with a live stream inspection from the plant's bio-off area. A process that normally takes three or more days is reduced to just one hour. Check out VSR at go.gbrx.com slash virtual. Well, welcome, uh, J.J. Ruest. Uh, J.J., of course, is our 2019 Railroader of the Year. J.J., uh, welcome. And uh, I think what we want to focus on today is the future. You know, uh, we, we've been, obviously, everybody's been preoccupied with uh, responding to the pandemic and I think all the railroads are in lockstep with how they're doing that. Uh, we, we know that, that CN, like, like every other railroad in the country, has, has been taking the precautions and doing its best to keep the traffic moving. Um, so, uh, you know, we're in a down period, obviously. Uh, that will pass. Uh, the traffic will come back. We all know it. When it does, what do you think the future is going to look like? What do you think is going to change in terms of uh, being part of the supply chain? Well, thank you, Bill, for having us, having me today. And uh, you're right, you know, that shall pass uh, and then business will come back. Uh, and it's part on us to work to make that happen and be one of the elements that bring business back. I think, uh, I think we all have a role to play. We all have a role to play and we all need to remember it's time to pivot. It's time to pivot to growth. It's time to pivot to uh, how we're going to enable this recovery. And I would say that uh, how, how we start this economy that we call home, that we call home, is really one of the role for the rail industry to do that, to enable and participate in making that happen, as opposed to stand by a spectator. We should be players on the ice and making it happen, as opposed to be sitting in the stand and hoping the economy comes back. So we definitely have a role as a proactive role, not a role as a passive role. Some of the business, though, may not come back the same way it was. I think uh, the, uh, what, what the pandemic has done is has precipitated a number of things that were already in play. Uh, give you an example, because now a lot of our uh, office people work from home. There was already in play before the pandemic. There was already a lot of technologies in, in place that could enable people to work from home and, in fact, be, be more productive from home. Because of the pandemic, we had to get it, get it done. Uh, change is difficult, and the pandemic has forced that change. But now that we're in it, I think definitely there's a lot of people, or at least many people, who are actually more productive from home and may never come back or will not come back into an office environment. 
But when we look at uh, other things happening, uh, that would be an example, say, on, as an example of what the pandemic has created, has accelerated something that was already in the works. And we need, to, we need to leverage the pandemic for some of the good things it has, for example, accelerating change. That's actually good change, collective change. On the market side, some of these markets also were getting to eventually going to be you know, challenged long-term, and thermal coal is one of them. So thermal coal was already on the decline. And uh, thermal coal right now, I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning, is now down so much, it's actually equivalent to the amount of electricity in the United States produced by uh, uh, alternate, uh, alternate energies. So we should renewable, not count- Renewable energies in many-, in many Renewable energies, that's right. So we should not count on coal to come back. What happened is the demand for electricity came down because the economy is down. Uh, but when the, when the economy comes back, I don't think uh, the correct production of electricity will come back up. But coal will not be one of the big benefits of that. So what that means is basically the, the pandemic has just accelerated some fundamental change that were going to happen anyway, but now becoming maybe uh, that we have to deal with. Some are deal with negative, like the fact of coal is market for the rail industry is coming is disappearing and disappearing fast. And some are positive, like the example of working people working from home and be more productive from home than they would be working, uh, coming back downtown and working in a big high-rise towers. So, it, it, so the, re, the mix of the business come, of the return will be somewhat different. And this is where we need to play a proactive role as to what do we do as an industry to create a market pie, an industry market pie that will keep on growing despite the fact some long-term market of the industry like thermal coal, domestic thermal coal, or uh, thermal coal export, or up to a point crew by rail, will not come back or will not come back to the level that there was pre-pandemic. So we definitely have a role to be sure that we go after the freight where it is, and we increase the size of the industry pie, industry market pie, as opposed to only go after each other's uh, market share. So the, there are certain uh, traditional commodities that uh, that will, will uh, the industry will always have the, uh, uh, the the forest products and other aggregates and things to support construction, uh, automotive traffic. Uh, once once cars people start buying cars and the factories have restarted manufacturing cars, that will come back. Uh, a year or so ago, you and I, uh, you and I talked a lot about what uh, this common term now is called the Amazon economy, becoming more, getting more involved in the retail end of the supply chain. And I think that might be the opportunity because if you have people that are uh, customers, the end user who's getting more things delivered, uh, anything from uh, from groceries to, uh, to to products, anything that requires some sort of packaging or a box, uh, what, what do you what do you see there? Yeah, so you're right. So uh, th there is the, the economy was always evolving and it's evolving right now, maybe a bit of a faster pace. So manufacturing will come back. It's a question of time. Bulk will come back. It's a question of time. Thermal coal will not uh, and, uh, and not to a great extent. And crude by rail may not also to a great extent, but manufacturing and bulk will come back. And the consumer economy will be even of a bigger role. So when you talk about e-commerce, Amazon, I mean, this is already the largest part of the Canadian and U.S. economy. The largest part of the Canadian and U.S. GDP is uh, consumer. 
And the consumer may not be working in a factory or, or in a mine generating freight that railroad can move, but the consumer has disposable income, and that disposable income generates freight demand. And that freight demand of the consumer tend to be mostly an intermodal product, tend to be freight that is uh, e-commerce or brick-and-mortar freight that is mostly a marketplace dominated by truck. So definitely, as a rail industry, our future is to keep following the puck. Where the puck is going is to keep following the economy where the economy is going. The economy is going toward the consumer. The consumer is buying product that generate freight, and the consumer is less and less working in a factory generating freight from, uh, from, uh, from, from, the, from their work. So the world of antimodal and the world of port business and the world of supply chain and the world of e-commerce which is all mostly around the, the container and mostly around the, the rail industry competing with the highways is becoming even more important for the rail industry future, especially at the time when we are forced into it, when some of our natural market, uh, which fits better our current model, that unit train of coal, the unit train of, 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 of crude, are you know, under a lot of pressure and may not come back fast enough uh, to make use of our asset. So definitely we need to get much better at the world of uh, serving the freight that the consumer, either brick and mortar and or e-commerce is generating by his uh, disposable income. I came across um, something that's been developed in Switzerland um, and it's, it's a smart reusable package. It's a box that can be reused over and over again. It's, it's sustainable packaging. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it no. has tracking built into it and it, it links yeah. to uh, a smartphone, for example. Um, so the customer, the end user can order things and, and have them, have them delivered and then they send the box back. And that to me, you know, so it's all connected. Uh, yeah. via, via, via the internet or the cloud or whatever you want to call it. And I, I looked at this and I thought, gee, this, this might be an opportunity, you know, for, you know, how does, how does a railroad get, get involved? So I'm thinking of something like a package, uh, it, it comes in a, uh, in a container, okay, in an intermodal container, it's offloaded and it either goes to a local delivery truck or maybe it even goes to a, a drone that can pick this thing up and, and bring it right to the house. So you're taking your take, the intermodal portion is taking the trucks off the highway. Maybe the local delivery, if it's done by a drone or something, it's called the box from living packets. Okay. Yeah. So two things you mentioned in, in that example of the, the box, the, this innovative product that you said is used in Switzerland is, is one, it's a returnable box. Yes. And any transporta transportation company, including rail and CN and Antimodal, we like two-way freight. We like when things go back when they came from so that we have, we just don't do one-way freight. So if the box is returnable, it has, you know, it has a lot of value, not only just from an environment point of view, but also has a value in terms of a balancing asset. The other thing you mentioned is in that box, there's a device, and these devices today are effective and they're most important, they're cheap. Five years ago, it was not possible, but today some of these devices are fairly cheap in terms of track and tracing. So that device allows the, the, the buyer of the goods which inside that box, reusable box, box to know where their, their, where their goods is at all times. 
And actually, that's, I would argue this is also part of the future. It is probably easier today with today's technology and probably even more so three, five years from now to have a low-cost device to follow a shipment as opposed to try to connect the data of all the partners in the supply chain, which brings all kinds of complexity in how you, how do you, how you exchange data. So we actually have a number of these devices that help us track where equipment is now on chassis, on container, on reefer container, because the cost of these things came down drastically. If you move uh, reefer goods today, or temperature controlled goods, which CN does a lot of it, and we do that retail, we sell it directly to, um, to the food company, for example, you can, and whether domestically or export, you can track the position of your container at all time. You will know at all time the temperature inside the container. You will know at all time if the, if the, the reefer is functioning. You will know at all time if somebody has opened up the door of the container. So you could actually track uh, food safety all along the supply chain because the device gives you transmission at all time. People don't, don't need to know all of that all the time. They need to know the exception. And if there's an exception, you get your signal. Or, or if there is a, an issue later where the receiver questions the food safety of what they receive, what might happen in transit, you can actually download the whole journey of the device. So, but the, the, the point here is that probably the reason why this company in Switzerland is able to do that, it's because the cost of operating is now affordable. You, know, you have a two-way box, that's great for the transportation industry, it's great for the environment, and the device inside the box is now down closer to a cost that you can actually do that and do that more cost-effectively than try to download you know, the, the data feed of the truckers and all of the people along the supply chain, which typically has been major, major IT problem. We have a say at CN is uh, redefining the art of the possible. And one of the reasons we have a, a couple of executives at CN who don't come from uh, the rail industry, uh, who, don't, who don't come from being at CN for 20 years, is to exactly do exactly that, is to redefine the art of the possible. And a lot of that will have to do with technology. So when you talk about precision schedule railroading, these basic fundamental of PSR will always be true. I mean, they'll be, they were true 10 years ago, they're true today, they will be true 10 years from now. Don't have more acid than what you need, keep your train length long and heavy, don't have more, more track than what you need, et cetera, et cetera. But over and above that, technology come in. And that's another thing that the rail industry needs to pivot to, and CN is definitely on that page, is use the basic or fundamental of PSR, never drift away from that, but to that, add technology. Just think outside of the box. Think of the new art of the possible, just like this company in Switzerland, who's now tracking uh, a shipment to this device. So therefore, you could also think in terms of huge amount of, amount of operating efficiencies when you know all things at all time. Plus, obviously, your customer service, especially in the world where you're competing with truck, and the truck, you know, we, we said earlier that the, the market the economy is moving toward the consumer. It's not moving in the direction of uh, big mine and big manufacturing side. The consumer has expectation that requires them or want them to, be, uh, to know where their goods are at all time. And then it will become one of the requirements of the rail industry to be successful in terms of how we grow our market, uh, industry market pie. It is my impression that 
the Canadian railways are way ahead of their U.S. counterparts with this sort of thinking. Uh, you know, CN certainly, uh, we see CP doing some things like this. You, you would talk about the perishables, the refrigerated products. You guys in Canada are far way ahead of the curve, at least from my perspective. Your thoughts on uh, that? Without, without putting any judgment on that, we, we, one thing we do on the domestic side is we do retail, right? A lot of revenue that we do in Entomoto, we actually retail directly to, to, to the, the, the big box retailer. We, we actually deal with the customers directly as opposed to a, a wholesaler. So in the U.S., the model in Entomoto is that you sell your services to Schneider, Hub, GB Hunt, and GB Hub Schneider and, and Hub serve the account. Therefore, they know the account better than the railroad. They have a relationship with the account and they have a better sense of what the account needs in terms of services to grow the business. So what that does, it, it limits your learning as a railroad as to how, what is it you need to do to grow the business because you're actually doing it through somebody else who has this knowledge and has this uh, close contact. On the Canadian side, for whatever historical reason, you know, when I joined CN 25 years ago, we already had a retail service in Entomodal. We deal directly with a customer. So we had to understand what is it that makes them use rail as opposed to truck. So it's called domestic retail. So you actually, we actually have a trucking operation that does local delivery. We have over a thousand drivers, they're broker operators, and we sell the service from the warehouse to the warehouse, including the rail service in between. So to learn a marketplace, I'm a student of the marketplace myself. To learn the marketplace, you have to be in it. And the closer you are to the marketplace, the better, better student, the more savvy you're going to be at creating product that actually resonate and earn market share. When you do it to somebody who does it to somebody else, you become many, many steps removed and you become a commodity. Your pricing power is not as good. You get auctioned out. And you're smart in terms of creating product that resonate with the ultimate consumer who wants to use rail because rail is cheaper, but it is, is using truck even though truck is more expensive because the rail service is not created in a way that addresses needs. So, so being closer to the customer, just like railroad historically, I've always dealt directly with coal utility, coal producer. I've always dealt directly with electric utilities. We understand that marketplace because we deal directly with the the people that bought in with no in-between agent, brokers, or intermediate. Eventually, in the, in the entrepreneurial space, to be as good as needs to be to meet Amazon's need and the, the need of the consumer of today, you need to get a whole lot closer to the people who actually made the decision as to which mode. Would you agree that there's some, perhaps some historical precedent to that? Uh, we're in the U.S. Uh, beginning in the 1950s. Uh, the government started investing massively in in the in the interstate highway system, which hurt really really hurt the railroads uh, yes. uh, over over the long term. Um, uh, so we have this huge, expensive uh, interstate highway system that was really built to accommodate trucks because you don't need the, for example, uh, highway overpasses. You don't you don't need the clearance for for cars or even SUVs or pickup trucks. You need it for, you need it for tractor trailers. That really didn't happen in in Canada, and perhaps that maybe that's that's why uh, uh, CN and CP and and your your regional and short line partners are 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 a bit ahead of the curve of where we are here in in the U.S. Is that would would you, would you agree with that assessment? 
I think it was part of the unintended consequence of build, make, making massive investment in highway system, basic infrastructure, which have been good for the economy. The overall economy has benefited for that. And the rare, when the economy does well, railroad benefit from that. So as, as, a, as a second derivative, the rail industry has benefited from the investment in infrastructure in the highway system. But at the same time, as you mentioned, because the highway system is subsidized, it's not being paid by the user, mostly the truck, to the, uh, the gas tax. The gas tax is not big enough to pay for the infrastructure, but it's subsidized, so it's making, it, it, it has drift, it has converted some business that historically would have, was on rail, would have stayed on rail to the highway. But I think uh, the rail industry doesn't want to go back where we get subsidies from government. We very much like our freedom, free enterprise, yes. and very much like the fact that we own the asset, we control our asset, and we don't get told who, who runs on our asset. So I think that's, that freedom has more value than, uh, than going to a system where we, we invite the government to start partly own and partly, partly own the asset and partly tell us how to use the asset. But for that, you know, this is historical reason. Whatever that is, it's, it's, it is a fact, so let's, let's, let's get on with it. The, the potential, again, is still for, for over long-haul long haul movement, uh, not door delivery, and I'm not big on drone delivery. I don't know if drone delivery one day will ever work out. Frankly, as, a, as an individual, I don't want a bunch of drones flying over my house during the weekend when I'm uh, trying to rest. So. But uh, the market is still there. It's, it's up for us to figure it out. And um, one of the things that we're working on at CN, and I know the industry has been working for, on this for a number of years, is how do we connect map together? Just that the map of the railroad is as good as the map of the trucker. So the trucker has a North American map, right? He used the highway system, kind of US Mexico, from anywhere to anywhere. He can price any freight by himself because he can go from your door to, to any door. The rail industry, too often, we basically have maps that are incomplete, especially in the world of intermodal. So on the Canadian side, CN has a full map. We, we cover every single city of any size. So we can offer you a door-to-door -door service, retail, retail intermodal to any Canadian city because our map covers all the major cities in Canada. In the U.S., you have the dividing line of Mississippi River. And obviously also between Canada and U.S., you have the fact that there's only CN that really gets in the U.S. in a big way, and we just go in the middle of the U.S. So in order for us to really compete against the highway, in order for us to really follow the puck, where the puck is going, which is the consumers and the freight driver consumers, we need to find ways to create map through acquisition, merger, joint venture, alliance, anything that really connects maps so that we have a map big enough that we, can all, we too can offer a service from door to door and compete uh, with truck. So small example of that is the, is the the deal that CSX and, and CN did last year, the Port of New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia, where we connected these three ports with Central Canada. So now you have daily service, daily rail service, moving from CSX to Quebec and CSX to Ontario, where we are using a merchandise train, a carload train, and putting on the back of that or the front of that some intermodal business that used to be trucked from these three ports to the highly populated areas of Eastern Canada. So if you want to compete with truck, we have the lowest cost. What is our service, the service that people want? What people want is a daily service, and there's always going to be freight between these 
three ports in central Canada. And for the rail industry to take that freight off the road, we need to work together and create that data service, just like we did with CSX. And we need to do more of that, if at all possible. We've seen uh, in the U.S. uh, some good examples of public-private partnerships where a railroad would uh, would partner with a with a state or a, a, a regional entity to to invest in an intermodal corridor, uh, double stack clearances, uh, tunnel clearances, ports, things like that, uh, facilities like that. Uh, it's it's been Norfolk Southern has done some of that. CSX has done some of that. Three uh, P, as we call it, uh, is, yep. is a model that that seems to work, but with limited success you know there is that fine line between not not wanting direct government subsidy but on the on the other hand where it benefits all the stakeholders no you're right and i think these are a good example an example of success uh love to have more of them as appropriate on the cn we have uh we have a couple of those examples but two of them are quite relevant so around the port of vancouver there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built as the city is growing in terms of population and as well as, as, the, as uh, the port activities is growing. So there's, there's a number of PPP projects around the port of Vancouver that involve roughly, the formula is typically one-third money from the port authorities, one-third money from the federal government, and one-third money from the railroad involved. And some of the infrastructure, a pure rail infrastructure, we would double track or we would build a retaining wall to go at the limit of our property, especially for properties on an angle. Or it, it's, it's, some of it has to do with uh, you know, road crossing and overpass and park and whatnot. So, but these infrastructure actually allow us to get a re- decent return on investment because now we share the investment with two other parties who also get benefit from our investment. Federal government get benefit from trade and they get tax, tax from that. And the port authority get benefit from the fact that their port become more efficient, therefore can handle more cargo, and they they they, they get the, the the revenue from the, the higher cargo activities. So, there there is a few example of PPP project uh, in Canada, United States. It seems to be mostly around port though, and it seems to be mostly around intermodal, where some of these things that uh, would be too expensive on a standalone basis, if the railroad had to do that on itself, but if you do it with some other parties. Uh, and again, I like the freedom that we have. I don't want, you know, this is our asset. Any asset built out of that, if it's a real asset, the railroads always own it. Uh, it, it, is, it is a solution to some of these projects, which otherwise might be a little difficult. It is also a way to get the permit, right? Many of these things are built in places where uh, permits are not easy to get. And the stakeholders of social support is also not easy to get from the neighbors, the cities, or, or the county. That's also one way to... Uh, to, uh, to ease yourself into some of these difficult discussion about you know, what will that do to some of the neighbors as you uh, build and expand some of the infrastructure. So yeah, it is, a, it is one of the ways uh, to get things done, which otherwise may not get done. What sort of funding streams are, are available in, uh, in Canada, either, either provincial or, uh, or federal for projects like this? In the U.S., of course, there's the various federal funds, the CMAC, uh, uh, TIFIA, there's all kinds of, all kinds of acronyms. <laughs> yeah. uh, but what, what, what sort of uh, vehicles are, are available in, in Canada to do yeah. this? There is a federal fund. It's the NTCF, uh, National Transportation Fund, 
to build infrastructure related to supply chain, related to trade. It has an amount of money uh, and it's, it's available to mostly those who are, uh, they're mostly port activities typically who are those who are making proposal to go and get some of these funds. And one of the rule is for them to, uh, the trade corridor, for them to get access to the money in that trade corridor, there has to be a PPP, going back to, I have to mention that the, 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 those who apply have to put some of their own money. So the Port Authority would have to put some of his own money. And all, the Port Authority would also have to bring in some private money from, from other of the benefiter, typically the railroad. So typically it's railroad, Port Authority, and, and, and the feds would match that, or it'd be uh, Port Authority, city, and the fed would sort of match that. Uh, Obviously, these things eventually get fully subscribed, and uh, you would need eventually to either put new money in the, in the program or create new program. And I think as a result of the pandemic, definitely all government, Canada and the U.S. included, will look at infrastructure fund, will look at infrastructure pool of money. Uh, I, I got to believe, though, most of these infrastructure funds are more, more successful when they require private, private money into it. When there's no private money, uh, sometimes the money get invested in something that's really of little use to anybody, right? It's you, you're building uh, you're building infrastructure, but when the infrastructure is being built, it's not being used by very much money. When you when you look for projects which are funded in the PPP program, the fact private money come in typically would guarantee the infrastructure will actually produce some goods to the economy once it's finished, because some somebody is actually has ways in the strategy and the plan to get it done and uh, and this is also very much part of how the economy needs to come back on its feet and CNN is very much involved as you know with the poor strategy we have a project in Quebec City uh, to build a brand new container terminal uh, it's actually innovated that way it's, it's CN with own 25% of the container ocean container terminal with a partner who's an expert at this Hutchison port of Hong Kong and then and then we hope that uh, either the provincial, the province, or the federal would complete the funding of the port authorities. So the port authorities also needs to participate. So it's a, it's a three quarter of a billion dollar project. Half a billion dollars is private money. Once it's completed, it will already be you know used because of the commitment of uh, CN and, and, and Hutchison behind it. And that's a greenfield site. Assuming everything is approved by year end, then we would be shovel ready early 2021 start up the uh, spring of 2024. Being that, uh, as, as going back to the beginning of our conversation <clears throat> with more people working from home, uh, there would be less of a need for office towers, for example, uh, in, in, in the inner yep. city core, maybe, yep. uh, you know, and that's all financed uh, by, it's all private investors, real estate developers. You think maybe they will see an opportunity in shifting their their investment money over to projects like this transportation projects infrastructure projects see the value in that the model we put together in that case is actually we all have the, the the private money all lined up and we found the right partners but to your point about working from home definitely the pandemic has proven there's a lot of work quite a bit of work could be done from home uh, could be home from home with more productivity so we should not worry about how we bring these people safely back into a high rise at CN. We have a 17th floor of a, of a small building. So that's, that's not figured out how we bring them back. Let's figure out how do we stay them home and have them set up from home because they're actually more productive from home. And in fact, in our building, I think I will say that uh, 
if, if I have if I have my way, my vision would be that we never occupy again the 17th floor. And then some of them maybe we could sublease to others, or maybe some of them eventually we repurpose into something else. Because uh, you know, the time to commute in public transit to come here and return and whatnot is actually turned out with technology of today may not be the best way to use uh, our people productivity. So I mean, that's one of the, we, we're going back to what does the pandemic does? The, the pandemic accelerate change. That was already in the works. The pandemic tells you it's there, you should embrace it because you have no choice and then you should, you should move on with it. And then when the pandemic is, is under control, don't make the mistake of going back to where you came from, right? Don't bring every people, every people back into the headquarters. Don't think coal will come back available what it was. Do, do now the stuff you would have had anyway in two or three years from now. So we need to work on the, the future mix of the book of business for the rail industry. And we need to work on PSR fundamental, the overlay with technology. And then we need to work on how we do general, you know, uh, general administration, some of it from home, much more because it will be much more effective than try to bring people downtown in a big city where they all share uh, you know, very, very busy floor. You know, you've used hockey analogies several times. I also, uh, I know that uh, you, you've used baseball analogies <laughs> yeah. and uh, swing, 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 at a swing at a fastball. So maybe, uh, maybe uh, industry starts to, uh, to see how the playing field is changing and the pitches coming in will be a little different. Maybe, maybe more curveballs and fastballs. And those are harder to hit. Yeah. But if you can hit a curveball, you know, you can hit anything. And yeah. that's coming from someone who never played baseball, but I know you did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the issue with curveball, they're tougher to hit, but if the curveball is inside the strike zone and you don't swing at it, you're done, right? right? So there is currently an environment where there's more curveball coming at all of us in the rail industry or industrial sector, or even retail. The curveball are coming in fast and furious and they're tougher to hit. But you got you to swing at them. You got to find a way to make use of what you, what's there. And if you make use of what's there, then you still get on base. So what this pandemic is, is creating is basically a sense of urgency for something that was going to happen anyway. I mean, there was going to be one day where as, as, a, as a hitter, you were going to be facing a pitcher who was very good at curveball. And if you can't hit a curveball, then, you know, you're not going to be very good at, uh, you know, staying on the lineup. So... Uh, we, 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 we need to embrace these things as much as they're painful and then move on. So we got more things in the work that uh, we hope that we can expedite quickly. So if, if post-pandemic, the regulators are in, inclined to really help out the private sector to accelerate the infrastructure project and even participate into them, then we hope that some of that will be, as one of the benefit, will be shovel-ready projects, so PPP. So we have... We have the project in Quebec City, which I just talked about. And then we also have a huge antimodal terminal in Milton, Ontario, Greater Toronto, that we want to build. That we've been at it for five years, five years of environmental permitting process, which we hope the decision will come out this fall. And that during this pandemic, that the government would find its way to help us enable this project and finally get to a, a yes so we can actually uh, build infrastructure for, uh, for what for Southern Ontario, and Southern Ontario is one of the places in North America that's becoming more and more dependent on consumer spending, consumer-derived freight, mm -hmm. and not so much uh, 
building uh, cars, you know, they used to be big in GM, Chrysler, and Ford assembly plant. These things are slowly going away. They're going away to Mexico. They're going all the way offshore. Unfortunately, they're going away to Southeast US. But the economy in Ontario is even bigger, stronger than it used to be. So where's the puck going? The puck is going toward the consumer. The consumer generates a lot of freight. It doesn't generate cargo freight. It generates antimodal freight. And that requires some infrastructure, some different solution. I find, you know, when, when you play hockey, trying to follow the puck where the puck just was is, you know, you get tired very fast. You can't quite, you can't quite sustain the 60 minutes following the puck three seconds behind where the puck was. If you go where the puck will be next, you save a lot of time. And that's how most uh, successful hockey player, uh, you know, you, you could be very physically fit, very tired and have no score, or you could be fairly, fairly physically fit and figure out where the puck go next and then uh, score goals that way. Well, the best players, uh, 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 as is often said in hockey, have this instinct to uh, to where the uh, to where, where the yep. puck would be. So you're absolutely right. Um, yeah. So same final, thing in soccer. Yeah. Same thing in football. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't run around. Uh, you know, one second after the after the ball. Run around one second ahead of the ball. CN, of course, deals with the regulatory regime in both Canada and the U.S. Uh, in, yep. the, in you in the U.S., the regulatory regime is. Uh, a bit in flux right now, a presidential election coming up, uh, STB is still not fully populated, a lot of things in play. What, what are you looking at in, in Canada specifically in terms of regulation? I think in both cases, it's, uh, I guess it's, 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 it is what it is. Uh, we are regulated, but at the same time, we have a good market environment. So the rule, by and large, the rule of the game for the rail industry in North America have worked well, and that's why the rail industry has such a good market cap, you know, obviously much better market cap than trucking company or even ocean, ocean shipping line companies. So we should, we should take it for in, in its entirety and, 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 and recognize that overall the regulatory environment has been, has been good to us. Uh, so really the strategy at CN is make sure you don't attract more attention than you need to. Do the right thing, provide the service, be reasonable, have the capacity the economy needs, don't get your customers in trouble, and then this way, um, don't give reason to a regulator to apply new restriction on our industry because we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Our job is to enable the economy. As long as we enable the economy to do, and we do this fairly, then the regulators probably doesn't need to uh, get too involved further in what we do. But at the same time, the regulators also has a role to help us uh, improve how we do things. So as we implement technology, for example, in PSR operation, you will you will find that a lot of the rule were written back in the days where a lot of things were done manually. Uh, track inspection and rail inspection is one of those things. So for us to really exploit technology, we need the FRA and we need Transport Canada to help us rewrite these rules. So eventually, today we do belt and suspenders. We do the way the things are written, which is mostly manual, and we also do the with the way automated. And we have data for both, and we get the results for both. And over time, as they look at the data that we do it with the belt uh, versus how we, you know, with the future of the suspenders, then they start to realize over time that actually the technology is better than what we do today. So help us change these rules the way they're written, so we can actually evolve. So these rule, these regulations. They all made a lot of sense when they were written, 
but they're written with the way of, of the time. And in order for us to evolve, rather than complain that it is written that way, this is how I needed to do it, the regulators, I think the FRA and I'm hoping Transport Council are the same page, they know that we can actually perform better with new technology. And, and if we give them the data that shows that, they will help us evolve in that way. So the regulator could actually be an enabler. Yeah, I think the FRA is definitely on that page when it comes to safety. Could be an enabler as how we can become a better railroad and a better citizen. On the commercial side, it's about fair price uh, and moving the economy. Don't, don't create bottleneck that uh, hurts our customer. When we do that, we, you know, shame on us. It's, it's up for us to resolve before the regulator come and resolve it for us. Okay. Well, JJ, I'd like to uh, thank you very much for, uh, for participating. It's always a pleasure to, to speak with you. I'd just like to wish you, uh, wish you the best, uh, not only for, uh, for, for business and business growth, but also for uh, good health and, uh, yeah. and, and safety for, for, for everybody. Yeah, family is good. The employees are good. We are extremely thankful about the imp our employee went through here since the beginning of the pandemic. We give them, we work very hard to give them safe working condition. And uh, they replicated back in giving us and running the railroad extremely efficiently. All operating people, all 20,000 had been at work. They never, they never stopped coming to work. The railroad never stopped operating. And so kudos to our industry. And I think what's really, really key today is that we, we need to get to move on from this dark cloud that, uh, you know, COVID-19 is, is a bad thing, which it is. But we need to learn how... How we learn, how we deal with it. So we've learned all the practice to to work safely. We learned all the practice to live, go by, our, by about our, about our life safely. We need to get back into a place where we restart the economy, we consume, we come to work safely, and we, we get this economy going again. Because uh, you know what we've had here the last couple of weeks is not sustainable, and it's it's something that needs to be done by the citizen as much as by the government. The way we restart this economy is all in our hand of every citizen. Well, thank you very much, JJ. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. That's it for this special edition of Rail Group on Air. Thank you to JJ Ruest and to our sponsor, the Greenbrier Companies. Be sure to check out Virtual Sample Railcar, VSR, at go.gbrx.com virtual. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief, William C. Vantuono. Have a safe day. <laughs>